0: to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions, where three philosophers sit at a bar and mix it up. My name is Rick Lee, and as usual, I'm joined by co-hosts, Dr. Charles Peterson. How you doing, Charles? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, Rick? I'm doing all right. And Dr. Lee Johnson, how are you, Lee? Doing good. Lee, what's your drink order and what are you ranting and raving about?
0: My drink order today is going to be a Sam Adams Oktoberfest. So my favorite beer is the Sam Adams Summer Ale, but when I went the other day to try to get it, they've switched seasons on me already. We got the Oktoberfest and I forgot, that's a pretty good beer too. So I'm going to have the Sam Adams Oktoberfest. Today, my rave is Elon Musk's interview announcing the new Tesla humanoid robot. So I just want to be clear that my rave is not necessarily about the the humanoid robot, and it's not really about Elon Musk or Tesla, but the interview, which was so hilarious because in the interview, he said, and this is a quote, I want to be clear that the new humanoid robot will be limited to a walking speed of 8 kilometers per hour and will be deliberately weak enough that most humans will be able to overpower it if needed. You never know.
2: (laughs) Did he actually say you never know?
0: He actually said you never know. And I was like, you know, there's just a lot to unpack there. (laughs) I'm still
2: pretty sure
1: it
0: could take me. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I don't know about that. At the end of the robot
2: revolution, that moment, Those three words, you never know.
0: Well, I was talking to one of my friends and I was saying, I really hope that if these go to market and people actually have these Optimus robots as home assistants, that they're wearing a T-shirt that says you never know.
1: (laughs) I I think when the robots take over, that's going to be on their
0: flag.
2: (laughs) They didn't know. I
0: will kill you. Okay, so my rant this week is maybe not surprisingly, the new Netflix series, The Chair, which it seems like I'm really shocked that so many people are raving about. This is the Inside Academia six-part miniseries starring Sandra Oh as the first woman of color chair of a English department at what looks like an elite private liberal arts school. I know that we academics are just starving for representation in popular media so hard that we're just going to take anything (laughs) that we get, but this was... Just not good. Like, it wasn't even an above-average television show. So I really want those six hours of my life back. And I want to say, do not watch The Chair. It is not good.
2: That older woman in the department, I loved her.
0: Yeah, yeah, she was good.
2: Oh, she's the the beaten-down, second-wave feminist who's been enduring the patriarchy for, like, 30 years. (laughs) Yeah, I, I got turned off when I saw the trailer and I saw that the Sandra Oh character who plays The Chair that she would have a love interest in the department. I thought, come on, man, really? Of course, of course. Come on. (laughs) So that turned me off, and I like Sandra O. but you're right, academics are so desperate. We're so hungry for some type of popular cultural representation and recognition that it's sad. (laughs)
0: I totally agree. And I just feel like this was such a great opportunity to give us something that is somewhere between the like nutty professor and or perv (laughs) and on the one hand and the, Oh, captain, my captain on the other hand, right? Like just something kind of right down the middle that's accurate, but also entertaining. And it, It just had so many opportunities and delivered on zero of them. So, yeah, two thumbs down for the chair. So,
2: uh, Charles, what's your drink order and what are you ranting and raving about? Well, my drink order and my rave are connected. So my drink order is a Vesper. Oh. I don't know what that is. Three parts gin, one part vodka, and a little bit of Blonde. It's a fantastic drink. What, What, you're not a James Bond fan? James Bond was drinking Vespers. That's right. My rave is 19 years of married to my wife. Ooh, congratulations. congratulations. The fantastic professor of Africana studies. She studies literature, Meredith Gatsby. We've been together for 19 years and she's just a great person. She's a great partner. It's been an amazing ride with her. And I'm thinking 19 years and hopefully at least 19 more and more than that. So, we went out to dinner last night at this really great French restaurant, and I had a Vesper. The woman obviously is a saint. Yeah, she, <laughs> oh, she is. She completely is. I wouldn't put up with me a minute. A minute.
0: I will raise my next fresca to you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Nothing says love like fresca. I my rant, moderation. Fuck moderation. And look, I'm not just saying that based on my own personal habits. That's not what this is about. <laughs> I'm saying fuck moderation because you had these dumb ass moderate Democrats who played small ball childlike games with a major transformative package that Nancy Pelosi is trying to get through the house. And for what? For absolutely what? So you can be seen as this Joe Manchin, Christian cinema type of person in the house who gives a shit. No one cares. Get on board. If you want to get reelected, take them the goodies to your district. That's how you get reelected. No one's going to remember your small ball maneuverings around obscure operational tactics within the House. For what? She still got it done. So fuck your moderation. It's not a belief system. Moderates can't tell you what they want. They can only tell you where they want to be. Sorry about You're that. you here. Yeah.
0: What about you, Rick? What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about today? Today,
1: I'm having a vodka and soda with a twist of lime. I'll go with Charles. I'll I'll have a Tito's with that, or in that, I should say. Well, maybe also with it. (laughs) The vodka soda with a Tito's sidecar. (laughs) Today, I am raving about Tony Mm, Bennett. Nice. uh, (laughs) Retired, probably way too early. The man's only 95 years old. Um, I saw the dude when he was 80. He performed here for an hour and a half without break, singing, dancing, and he didn't do an encore. And the people next to me were like, oh, he didn't do an encore. I'm like, the man's 80 years old and he just performed
0: for He has to pee.
2: (laughs) If he was a real pro, he'd have a catheter. If he was a pro. (laughs) Or that astronaut diaper. Um, I'm
1: diaper. I just heard some reruns of interviews with him on Fresh Air. He's got a really interesting story about confronting racism first in the army and then in the profession. Yeah, I found out he was a painter, and then Charles offline told me that there's a painting of his at Count Basie's house. They were lifelong friends. Louis Louis Armstrong's house. Oh, Louis Armstrong's house. Uh Aha! But he was also lifelong friends with Duke Ellington. Frank Sinatra once said he wished he had Tony Bennett's voice. He's an incredible interpreter of song. My rave is related to one of my rants in a previous episode. I'm ranting about the baby. Like, what is up with your homophobia and your tossing little Nas X under the bus? There's no reason for it. It's little Nas X's moment. He's doing great things. So back off and shut
2: up. Nice, and I will say this: I challenge any other philosophy podcast to be able to talk about Tony Bennett, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Louis Armstrong, and the Baby and Little Nas X all in the same episode, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and within four minutes. Yeah. And within four minutes—that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. We gets it done. All right, so Lee,
1: you're in the hot seat this week. What are we talking about?
0: Today we're going to talk about the hustle. Do not- Which sounds like a vague topic, but I have a few things in mind that I want us to focus on. Recently, HBO aired a 10-part miniseries that they called Generation Hustle. And in it, they mostly feature younger Gen Z, Gen Y, people who have, at some point or another, run a hustle. And there, I'm talking about a hustle in the sense of, like, a con. And I do want us at some point to talk about where does the hustle stop and the con begin. But that is one sense of what we mean when we talk about a hustle. But I also want to fold that into another phenomenon that is very characteristic of both the Gen Y and Gen Z, which is having a life more or less defined by the side hustle, right? And in particular, I want to talk about gig work. And I think that what we've seen over the last 15 years or so is an explosion in the number of people whose incomes rely on gig work, on side hustles. And so I want us to talk about what are the merits and demerits of that emerging shadow economy. And then finally, I want us to talk about hustling as a verb. The sense that we all feel now that you always have to be going at full speed all the time just to keep your head above water.
2: First of all, I want to say this. And for the listener, Lee has had some eye surgery. She's well, she's great. She's fantastic. But she's wearing some shades, I guess, to protect his light sensitivity. She looks like a hustler and I'm I'm literally sitting here patting my pants to make sure I still got my wallet.
0: He's leaving out that he he does that anytime he's around me, but
1: (laughs) before you got on, she was asking me about my car warranty.
2: So, okay, but I will start, and yes, on your advice, on your recommendation, I did watch the HBO series Generation Hustle, and it was basically very different from what I expected. From the way you had talked about it, I realized that you were focusing specifically, on, I think, on one particular episode is what you were thinking about, and so I watched the whole series in order, and I think it's an important question that you bring up the difference between well, actually, it's a three-part sort of distinction between a hustle, a con, and sociopathy, I think, is really what we want to talk about. Because the series was really very good at pointing out these really fascinating occasions where you had people who were able to construct, in many cases, really complex misdirections and frauds against various populations. And not just sort of people they didn't know, but in many cases, people they knew, actually the most vulnerable, who were people that they were close to. So the series talks about that, and it's really a fascinating and frightening look into human behavior.
1: It seemed to me, following up on that last point you made, Charles, that all of the episodes are pretty much squarely about different con games, although a couple of them, it wasn't quite clear to me, is this an out-and-out con, or is this somebody's gig work? But it seemed like there were two approaches that the subjects of episodes took. One was the sociopathic approach where yeah. as as you said, Charles, they just screwed their friends and their friends' parents and so on out of money. And oftentimes it seemed without remorse. But then there were a couple who and I'm thinking Lee, remind me of the episode Stop the Beat is it called, or The Beat Stops, or A, a Scam with a Beat. Yeah. A scam with a Beat. So he, in particular, held the position, and I'm not sure he's wrong about this, that in a way it was a victimless crime, or at the very least, the victims were credit card companies and banks, and maybe insurance companies.
2: Well, let's describe what the episode entails. So it focused on this young man from Detroit, who's a rapper. And he was a young man who basically, at the age of 13 or 14, left his mother's house and entered into a life of scams, mostly online scams, credit card scams, Instagram scams, all these sort of things he was able to really become a master at. And it seems that at a certain point he had a friend who was a rapper one night they were in the studio and he was like, hey, spit some bars, give me 12. And he started basically describing and telling people, this is how you do what I do. This is how you pull off a credit card scam. This is how you pull off an Instagram scam. This is how you pull off a Twitter scam. And it, it's seemingly become a, a genre of, of contemporary hip hop. So I think it's important for people to know that because where he's coming from and his hustle, this scam, he sees that as a necessary part of his life because he's coming out of a poor neighborhood. He's coming out of a financially depleted part of Detroit. So this, at least initially, seems like this is a way that a 13 or 14 year old boy who's disconnected from his home can begin to live in the world and make money. I think he's not wrong that, I mean, he's not holding people up, right?
1: He's not robbing them on the street. He's not doing carjackings or even when in the drug trade. And so I think he's not wrong that there is something qualitatively different about his hustle. It doesn't seem like run-of-the-mill criminal.
0: Yeah. And in his own explanation, he's very aware of how this actually plays out for his, in scare quotes, victims, which is that he's like, look, people have credit card insurance. You know, people don't actually have to pay these fraudulent charges. I'm not stealing from other people. If anything, I'm stealing from credit card companies. And if they're suckers enough to just put it out here like this, I'm going to pick it up.
2: Well, that's the thing. And I'm certainly no finance expert. But it seems to me that credit card companies still penalize their customers because of those actions. They still transfer the costs. Or, you know, what you may have is someone whose credit history is screwed until they can straighten all of this out. What's the expense of straightening that? I mean, how difficult is this to straighten this out? And, you know, I'm not trying to sound like, hey, yay, capitalism. I'm not about that anyway. But if we forget that there is a triangle of interaction, the scammer, the corporation that gets scammed, but really the fellow customer gets scammed first and then the scam gets transferred to the corporation. And there's that moment where someone's like, oh, shit, what do you mean I can't use my credit card? I need to buy this for my kid. What do you mean I can't use my credit card? I need to rent this car to do this. And what do you mean? I don't know about buying any tickets to Peru. What are you talking about? So I'm not sure about the victimless crime thing.
0: I think maybe one good way to think about it is in comparison to... The story told in another one of the episodes about this woman, Anna Delvey, I think was her name, who sort of posed as this heiress or something. The, 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 the fake
2: and, German heiress, yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, a fake German heiress and built up this largely false social media following. And of course, like all con artists do, was able to get people to back her, but then started taking her friends on these elaborate vacations and then suddenly having a problem with her credit card when it was time to pay the bill. And, you know, that seems to me... I like, feel like this is going to be something that is going to be hard as we go forward with some of these stories. Because I agree with you both. That some of them are sociopathic. This woman, I think, was. That is a hustle that I have no respect for. That's just straight up sociopathic. But I do respect the hustle that TJ, which is the rapper, was right. pulling. And I think that he was very careful to think about, for example, who the victims are. And whether what he was doing was worth the risks. I also want to point out that TJ was always thinking three cons ahead. And when he was able, after getting a record deal for basically wrapping these scams, took the record deal and stopped scamming. He says, like, I don't run these scams anymore because I don't want the IRS on my ass. So I have a lot of respect for his hustle as opposed to some of these other, like I said, sociopathic ones.
1: Well, I was going to say something else, but following from what you just said, Lee, there's a way in which all of these hustlers are incredibly smart. And then the question is, do they use their powers for good or for evil? TJ, I'm not sure. But I do want to say, even though I think it's mostly a victimless crime, and I think we're going to have to get into the relationship between the hustle in both senses, in the sense of the con and in the sense of gig work and the side hustle, the relationship between that and the underside of capitalism. But until we get there... In favor of the argument Charles was making, it turns out that all these perks that credit card companies offer us, including protection on fraudulent charges and so on, mean that they raise their fees to businesses, which means businesses raise their prices for everyone. And so there is a way in which, in fact, all of us are the victims of these kind of scams because we see it in the prices that businesses charge to pass along the fees that credit card companies charge to us. So I think it's not entirely victimless, but that is spread out in a pretty wide way, whereas some of these other scams like the fake German heiress or even the founder of WeWork or the guy who puts together parties they're scamming people that are directly related to them that they are friends with and they are lying to their faces and i think tj is not
2: no tj is doing something very interesting i mean i'm with you i respect the hustle one of my favorite actually my favorite jay-z albums is don't knock the hustle i love the fact that he's figured out how do i prey upon the predator because really the whole system of credit is the predator the whole system of promotional consumerism is the predator. And he's found a way to lock into that system, exploit his weaknesses, and take advantage of it. And look, he's a poor kid from Detroit. He's getting his. And he's getting his in a way that a society has fundamentally taught him how to get his. One of the episodes I really liked was the young man who had gone into securities. And he had began to commit certain types of fraud because the entire housing crash of 2007-8 is based upon fraudulent scamming. So I I like the fact that T.J. is like, no, 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 I'm going to take advantage of the system as you've constructed it. So I appreciate that. What really disturbed me is that he has to exist in a way where everybody around him is a mark of sorts, Mm. that everyone is going to be, if not a victim, as we think about it, there's no physical violence, but they're going to be vulnerable to his manipulations and his exploitation of their lack of surveillance about their lives. It's predatory. I mean, it's definitely predatory. I think that's the part. I, I like this. How do we exploit capitalism and use its own tools, discover the internal contradictions of it? That's fine. But the fact that it's like now he is encouraging people, right? Because that's one of the things the listener needs to know, that his raps, and I'm, I'm using sort of air quotes, his raps are him basically saying this is how to scam other people. So he's encouraging the creation of a Hobbesian world of like all against financial all that is problematic for me.
1: Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact, all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. We're there often to solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip, keep it under two minutes, please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. Oh, my God.
0: what you said before in describing TJ, which is that he sees everyone as a mark. I think that is absolutely true. And I think we can see that in a lot of the people whose stories are told in this series. You know, Rick said all of them are smart in one way or another. I think there is one story about somebody who's not smart, and that's the fake Saudi Prince. He just seems to to have, like, literally pratfalled into, you know, into his con. I'm not even sure he knew what he was doing. But I do want to talk about this, seeing everybody as a mark. And both of you have suggested this already, but it really does get us back to the sort of disposition, not only civic disposition, but interpersonal disposition that we have towards others when we're living under capitalism. And I think that maybe what separates some of these con men and women from any of the rest of us who are just working a job is that they are self-aware that this is the system that we live in. Everybody else is a mark. If I don't get mine, somebody else is going to get mine. And so it's very easy to, from the outside to say, Oh, that's sociopathic, but we live in a sociopathic system.
1: What's interesting about that, Lee, is while I was watching that episode in particular, it reminded me of something that comes up in The Godfather Part 3. I know everyone hates that movie. I wish it weren't a bad movie, but I think it's important to the story. Because one line he says in Godfather 3 is, I've been spending my whole life trying to make the family legitimate. And what I've come to discover is the legitimate world is more criminal than the mafia (laughs) is. And and I think TJ recognizes that we are all forced in a capitalist society to treat one another as Marx. That's how we confront one another in a capitalist marketplace is I need to get mine. And if that means I have to take you out, I'm going to take you out in order to get mine. And, and so not to shift right away to gig work, but I think the fundamental relationship between both hustles is that they're both playing on a certain underside of capitalism.
0: Before we switch to the gig work, I do just want to make one point that for the three of us is going to be a come to Jesus moment, which is that the three of us, our jobs, our livelihoods are participating in one of the biggest cons in America right now, higher education. Every time I sign a textbook, I'm participating in a scam game. You know, every time I teach a class, I mean, I'm sorry, and like, maybe this is something I'm not supposed to say, but I didn't read that clause in my in my uh, contract, but I do have my Tinder britches on, so whatever I'm going to say, but like higher education is highway robbery. But the point I was trying to make before is that the three of us, we're like, but this is our job. And we have ways of justifying how we're doing good, honest work. And I think the difference between what I'm doing When I identify my marks, when I try to recruit students to enroll in my classes or just when I teach my classes every day, the difference between what I'm doing and what the so-called con men are doing is that they know that they're running a scam. And I'm not trying to say that these are all victimless crimes, but I do think that there is something again, to respect about that hustle, to respect about having that kind of probity and honesty and insight into what it takes to hustle a living.
2: No, without a doubt. I mean, one of the things that I loved about TJ was this is a brilliant young man. Yeah. In terms of technical proficiency and not just him, but there seems to be a community of these underground tech intellectuals and activists. So technologically, he's got an amazing proficiency. Psychologically, he understands how can I manipulate people in terms of consumerism and promotions right when he talked about the ways in which he was able to insert himself and his scam into a famous personalities Instagram account and parasitically but brilliantly ride that person's fame in order to feed his so th- these are amazingly intelligent people and one of the things that you constantly hear within TJ's episode is if only he uses powers for good right But the thing is, though, and this is to go back to Rick's point about Godfather 3 and Michael Corleone's comment, what is the good? Like, what is the system? What is the order that's good? Because I'm going to go back to generations of Wall Street financiers and bankers and sort of people in housing and mortgage loans and and subprime contracts. That's supposed to be the legal thing. And what makes it even more corrupt is because you are giving it this veneer of legality. So at that level, I'm not mad at TJ at all. These are the conditions under which capitalism has forced us to exist.
0: I think another thing, just to echo what you're saying, Charles, about really how much respect I had for TJ after watching that episode, is that, you know, he's developing these interpersonal skills and financial skills and psychological skills against all odds. So unlike, for example, the episode that was the frat boy Ponzi scheme, where you have someone who already has a tremendous amount of privilege, of course people are going to lend him money, of course people are going to trust him, of course people are going to think that when he screws them over, it was just an honest mistake. Like, that is not how people see TJ. He has to literally hustle for every hustle. So I think that there's a lot to respect about his story.
1: I was shocked in watching these episodes episodes how many of them were just various forms of ponzi schemes yeah yeah and tj's hustle is not a ponzi scheme and it's not even a form of a ponzi scheme maybe also the the fake heiress she was also not running a Ponzi scheme. She was just straight up stealing from her friends, which, in a way, the only reason why that's a hustle is because she had to concoct the whole fake German heiress thing and cultivate contacts in the art world and buy expensive Fendi bags and Manolo Blahnik shoes and
0: so on. Ricky seemed to know a lot about the details. <laughs> 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 It's like, well, in my previous life as a German heiress, <laughs> these were the tools of my hustle.
1: I was a real German heiress, though. Actually, my, my mother's maiden... No, I shouldn't say that on a podcast, what my mother's maiden, <laughs> maiden name is. Um, no, no So I was shocked at how many of these were Ponzi schemes, which really don't take a lot of ingenuity and smarts and so on. But they all do. I mean, we've called some of these hustlers sociopaths. But let's be clear, in order to play the the hustle, they have to have an incredible emotional intelligence, right? They don't experience emotions, it seems themselves, but they do really have to understand how others feel and how to play on those feelings in order for their hustles to work.
0: Okay, so I have a question, and I genuinely don't know the clinical definition of sociopathy. I'm one of those people who uses that term probably too loosely, but I thought that the indicator of a sociopath was that they had a kind of disregard for the consequences of that. So, I mean, just to boil it down to philosophical terms, it's someone without a moral core or a moral backbone or something. It's not that they don't understand right and wrong. It's not that they don't understand that other people have feelings. It's just that they have no regard whatsoever for those things. Is that a correct understanding of sociopathy?
2: So it seems that sociopath is really just an old name for an antisocial personality disorder. And the definition of such is the presence of a chronic and pervasive disposition to disregard and violate the rights of others. Manifestations include repeated violations of the law, exploitation of others, deceitfulness, impulsivity, aggressiveness, reckless disregard for the safety of self and others, and irresponsibility accompanied by a lack of guilt, remorse, and empathy. The disorder has been known by various names, including disocial personality, psychopathic personality, and sociopathic personality. It is among the most heavily researched of the personality disorders and the most difficult to treat.
1: Boy, does that describe Donald Trump or what? Holy fuck.
0: Well, I was just about to say that I'm sure you've all seen this in the last several years, in part motivated by Donald Trump's rise to power. There were all of these articles about how In extremely wealthy people and extremely powerful people, that there's a disproportionate number of people who display sociopathic tendencies and characteristics. And it's now occurring to me that in a system like capitalism, which not only encourages but rewards the disregard of other people's feelings of the law and of right and wrong, Of course, to make it in that system, you're going to have to indulge whatever sociopathic tendencies that you have.
1: To quote Michael Corleone one more time, it's not personal, (laughs) it's business.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that could have been the title of every single one of these Generation Hustle Yeah, it's that personal business, yeah.
1: So, I mean, not to get all Marxist on this, but Marx had already diagnosed the fact that a society organized around capitalist modes of production— will be a society in which we encounter one another as things rather than as people. And Georg Simmel has a really nice essay called Metropolis and Mental Life is the English translation, in which he pinpoints the characteristic of modern cities as imbued with this kind of capitalist impersonalism, In which we either engage one another as things or we engage one another as means to an end. And in that sense, then it seems to me that, I mean, again, I I, want to say, but now I realize I don't think I have a good argument. The German heiress is of a different kind than T.J., and yet both of them are exploiting this structural impersonality that belongs to capitalist
2: societies. I think there are two great points. I think certainly the dehumanization that takes place within capitalism, and we see it through technology, right? We've all been reduced to our credit card numbers or our dates of birth or our credit numbers, right? We're just this mixture of digits that float within the electronic ethernet. But I think also there's a question of, and I like Lee's point about how this type of personality really gets fertile ground within the conditions of capital. And I'm thinking about that great novel of capitalism and the plutocratic sensibility, which is Moby Dick, right? Herman Melville's, Mm. and I I think about C.L.R. James's book, Mariners, Castaways, and Renegades, where he does this Marxian analysis of Moby Dick and reveals Ahab to be this character character. That is distinct and very specific to the age and precedes your Carnegie's and all these other robber barons of the late 19th century and early 20th century. So I think one thing that Generation Household does, and no matter who's being examined in the episodes, these are all people who are very specifically resulting from certain aspects of capitalism. Even if you're talking about the fake German heiress, right? She's someone who's consumed by and committed to debords society of spectacle. And mm-hmm. she feels like she only has an existence if it can be glamorized and observed by others. That gives her meaning. So she's really pursuing these things because she's just trying to be this public figure. She's trying to live within the spectacle. Or, or it's TJ, who's actually straight up lumpen-fucking-proletariat, who's navigating life in the old-school, post-industrial, marginalized-because-of-race-and-class way of being, but that's still a result of the ways which capitalists create created a particular world that people connect to and have to function and find ways to live and exist within.
0: I mean, there's a lot of things that we could point to as explanations for how these stories come to be. We've been focusing on capitalism or late capitalism for the most part, but we're leaving out the other side of this, which is that a lot of this is also tied up with social media. A lot of these hustles right. are only possible on the back of a certain performance or presentation of a self that is necessary for the con to work, and you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is that the title of this docu series is not called "The Hustle"; it's called "Generation Hustle," right. and it's very much, I think, aimed at Gen Y and Gen Z, millennials and Gen Zs, maybe some Gen Xs in there too, but you know, people forty and under will say. And I think that it's something that we need to ask ourselves. Why does this present itself as such an enticing possibility? Is it because of social media? Is it because of the stages of late capitalism that we're in now? What is it? You know, Another explanation would be because people who are 30 or below don't have the prospect of a life of honest hard work ahead of them. That's just a vanishing possibility for most people. Well, I
1: mean, that goes back to your calling us out. We are the last or among the last of the professions where we not only have, but we fully expect job security. I mean, those of us who are tenure-track or tenured, mostly those of us who are tenured. Now, the three of us know very well that increasingly higher education is becoming gig work, right? And so tenure-track lines are being replaced by adjuncts who have to hustle to put together a a living. And so they're gig workers. I agree with you, Lee, that my father, he had a job once in a bank, and he could have worked in that bank for... 50 years or 60 years and retired with a pension and so on. And now economists are saying that you'll change jobs every five years or something like that. And not just change. You'll
0: change careers. I was going to say, not just change
1: companies, but you'll change careers. And by the way, that's why you all should be philosophy majors, because we train people how to change careers. Exactly. So um, big philosophy call us. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, APA,
2: come through with it. (laughs)
1: So I think there is something about the lack of job security. On the other hand, to go back to a point Charles made and to bring this back together with the issue of race, when we talk about that, I think we also need to talk about the ways in which that kind of job security was based on a whole host of exclusions. So that Mm -hmm. not everyone was allowed to participate in that kind of job security. And so in someone like TJ, there is a certain claiming like, hey, motherfucker, if you're not going to give, I'm going to take. Boy, that's a a line also from Godfather 3. It's what Joey Zaza says. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs)
0: Once every episode, as a public service to Hotel Bar Sessions regular listeners, your HBS hosts offer a quick-fire segment of random facts that you can use to spice up your future cocktail party conversations.
1: Here's a random fact. Seven people were charged with the bombing in Haymarket Square in Chicago. Four were executed. All of them were known not to have been there. The four victims, as well as others, are currently buried in Forest Park, Illinois.
2: Today's random fact, humans are the only animals that blush, or, to quote Mark Twain, have need to.
0: Here's a random fact. Bananas glow blue under black lights. To the everyday eye, under normal conditions, ripe bananas appear yellow due to an organic pigment called carotenoids. When bananas ripen, chlorophyll begins to break down, and this pigment is the element that makes bananas Glow or fluoresce under UV lights and appear blue. Okay, guys, I don't want to get out of this episode on The Hustle without explicitly talking about gig work. I want to kind of paint a picture for our listeners about gig work. So, as you probably know, There's a tremendous difference between employees and gig workers and or independent contractors in terms of labor rights or protections. Gig workers do not have the right to organize a union or bargain collectively. They don't have minimum wage protections. They don't have overtime wage protections. They don't have access to unemployment or workers' compensation. They don't, I mean, this is probably really obvious, they don't have employer contributions to Social Security or retirement, and there's no anti-harassment or discrimination protections for gig workers. So it's bad work in many ways. But a recent study, I think like three years ago, asked people who have side hustles, gig work how important is the income you earn from gig work to you and a good of 45% of them said that that gig income was essential to meet their basic needs and a whole another 32% said that it was a important part of their budget so whatever that is 70% of people it's either essential or extremely important to just living I think that when gig work came on the scene as its own category of talking about work, it seemed like a really good hustle for a lot of people. You know, I don't have a job, I can set my own hours. And now we're seeing that capitalism just absorbed that naivete right up. And <laughs> it's just basically put those gig workers on the spit and we're just sitting back and barbecuing them.
2: And I think about this in terms of Certainly the breakdown of traditional labor, which Rick rightly points out, was so solid because of the ways in which it set barriers to who could derive benefits from engaging that labor. But it, it, it seems to me that the rise of the gig worker is exactly what you're describing, which is this idea that, oh, man, there's money out there in the streets just waiting to be plucked up. If you just hustle your ass a little harder, if you're willing to pick up another job, if you're willing to drive Uber and drive Lyft, it presents itself as almost utopian versus as revealing the really sad straits that one finds oneself in if you have to work these various jobs and be subject to. And I'm looking at this um, recent ruling by a judge in California, which sort of, I don't want to say overturned, but ruled that Proposition 22, which defined Uber and Lyft drivers as gig workers, was not constitutional. And for those who are unfamiliar, California's gig worker laws, which argue that These are not employees of businesses, but they're independent contractors, which means that businesses don't have to provide benefits. They don't have to provide insurance. They don't have to provide money for pensions or any of that. That law also extends to migrant labor. So the people on farms and who do the work of picking the produce that we all nationally consume, they're considered independent contractors and have no access to the various protections of formal labor. So it seems to me that it's always been this sort of desire to put laborers in this position of being vulnerable, but feeling themselves responsible for that vulnerability and having to work even harder for the benefit of the bourgeoisie if we want to go old school Marxist with it.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad that you're bringing up this point about their vulnerability, because if there's anything that we learned in the last year and a half since COVID, it's that these are the most essential workers, right? I mean, most of us, I don't know about you guys, but that's how I got my groceries. That's how I got my food. You know, I've... I never went to, I still have not been inside of a grocery store since March, 2020. You know, after several months of being on lockdown and having groceries delivered, we just do that now. And of course, Rick mentioned earlier that there are whole industries that are absolutely reliant on gig workers, academia being the most damnable of them all. But I also think that there's a kind of a hustle, and hustle in the sense of con, that these gig work companies are hustling the people who end up becoming gig workers. I saw just the other day, someone on Twitter said, people complained about gig work, I got a job with Uber, and I doubled my income. And a, someone responded, that's not what doubling your income means. Right. Like what you did was you got another job. You're now working two jobs. You did not double your income. You just got a second job.
1: Well, and also it's becoming more and more clear that Uber in particular is not only not profitable, but cannot be profitable. And so this is going to collapse eventually because the money is going to run out. Or if it doesn't collapse, that's because capitalism itself is a Ponzi scheme. Uber is running the long con in general and the founders and the first employees are going to walk away rich no matter what happens after that collapses and all the drivers are totally fucked. But Lee, I'm so glad you raised this issue of doubling your income because the notion that time is money is real. Time really is money. And, and so in a sense, the fact that you got a second job means that you have less time uh, of your own to spend. And to put this in historical perspective, this was the the main issue around which all the labor in Chicago gathered on the first May Day was the eight-hour working day because they recognized that Th- what they would say is 8 hours for work, 8 hours for rest, and 8 hours for whatever the fuck we want. Um <laughs> exactly. and
0: here here to that. Yeah. And and
1: so in a sense they were asking to be compensated f- for giving up their time. And so I think you're right that there is a way in which in order to have to hustle. And here I mean it in the sense like work a lot, work quickly, do a lot of things at once, this robs you of your time, time that you could be using to do other things.
0: I also want to point out another long con gig company that's robbing us of something just as essential as time. And I'm talking about Airbnb. So a lot of people don't think about Airbnb hosts as gig workers, but of course they're gig workers. But Airbnb has been playing a long game, and the consequences of that long game have been there is less and less affordable housing every year. Mm. It is extremely hard to buy a house right now. There are more buyers than there are homes, and a lot of the people who have the means to purchase homes are purchasing them not for tenants, but for Airbnb, for gig work, for I- income. And it's a very profitable side hustle, the Airbnb is. But people are getting evicted, rents are rising. I mean, these sort of long cons on the part of these gig companies are really something that if we don't get control of them, and maybe those horses are out of the barn, But if we don't get control of them, it's not just making the lives of workers even more miserable than they already were, but it's also making deep, structural, irreversible changes to the kinds of access and opportunities that everyone has. Well, it's interesting
2: that you say that. I was reading on Twitter, and I think there was an announcement that Airbnb is going to provide housing for 20,000 Afghan refugees, right, who are flying out after the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban. And the person who posted it said, well, what about the homeless? If you, yeah. can, if you can provide housing for these refugees, which they should have, why can't you provide housing for the homeless?
0: Yeah, and you'll notice that the word missing from there is free housing. Oh yeah, of course. Right. We're well, not providing free housing. It's just that the government is going to pay the right. the Airbnb hosts. Yeah. You know, so and Airbnb is going to take their whatever percentage cut from that. So.
2: Well, and of course the fear is that some of the money that's supposed to go toward um rent relief may yeah. be directed toward these Airbnbs. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But
1: but this goes back to I, I think the way in which The hustle in both the form of the con and in the form of gig work is playing on what appears on the surface to be the fact that there is excess value in the system that can be expropriated, and I'm going to expropriate it. But Lee, you're pointing out that the gig workers themselves are actually not expropriating it. They're in a sense getting another wage. And yeah. and that wage means they're using their time in order to produce that value, which they're not getting all of it either. So it's a only apparent exploitation of excess value in the system or expropriation of this excess value. But on the other hand, it seems like it emerges from the fact that there will always be a drive toward greater, greater efficiency And I disagree with people who are constantly talking about—and they had to make up a stupid word for what we already had a perfectly good word for—disintermediation. So there's a lot of talk that, for example, technology, so the story goes, normally gets rid of the person in the middle and puts one party in direct contact with the other. Never mind that the technology itself is a medium— And never mind that capitalism is what it is because there is always mediation. And that's where the expropriation comes from. And and so I I think this issue of getting rich off of doing gig work is something that if you're really going to do it, you're going to have to turn your gig work into
2: a con. That's the only way to actually get rich. Here's the genius of the corruption of it. It seems like this is an invitation to be an entrepreneur. Right this is an invitation for you to you own your car and you control your hours and you make money directly and there's no middleman. But really, you're being conned into now you're becoming this wage slave, right? It's like saying to Africans on the West Coast of Africa in 1780, hey, would you like to go to America? And you get a few plots of land and you grow some produce and you put those on the market. It's like, yeah, I want to do that. And you get this like, no, fuck you, you're a slave.
0: Yeah, you get paid in housing.
2: You get paid (laughs) in housing and shitty food and terrible clothes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, But it
2: seems like that's what's happening. To not just Uber and Lyft, they're just perfect examples, but any type of gig work operation that dangles this utopian idea of being a self-made person.
0: Yeah. And if I could just kind of bring this full circle back to the Generation Hustle, the the title Generation Hustle, it. it seems to me that if I were in my teens, 20s, even into my 30s and looked out at the world and had some real reckoning with what I saw I would immediately see that my only options are the hustle and the con. And I'm not sure that the con, exactly as Rick said before, is not in many ways, not only a preferable choice, but maybe even more respectable choice. So just going back to TJ, our scam with the beat guy from Generation Hustle, I do think that he stands out to me in that whole series as someone who has a... What is it called when you have like 10,000 foot view? Yeah, he has the real 10,000 foot view of not only the alienation of labor under late capitalism, but also the sort of circus of images of social media, the really damaged psychology of most people and the desperateness of his own dire economic circumstances. And there's something that when I see that someone like that chooses a a con and not just a hustle, I got to respect that in some ways.
2: Hey, listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at hotel bar podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their all-fair thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson's with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick. Lee, with two E's, and Philo spelled like half of the word philosophy, and Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson, the doctor's abbreviated, and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. In the off chance that you weren't furiously scribbling notes just in, you can also visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and find everything you need to know there. Now, back to our conversation.
0: (laughs) you guys, this has been a really fascinating discussion, and you guys have given me a lot more to think about, a lot more really sad and depressing things to think about, but <laughs> nevertheless, something to think about. <laughs> However, it does look like Frangelica is... Wrapping it up, she's got to go and do her side hustle. I think she runs Uber at night. So, Frangelica is giving us last call, and that means we have to get out of here. But, Rick, you are going to be in the hot seat for our next episode. What are we going to be talking about next time?
1: Well, in this episode, Lee, you uh, used a lot of words that I have to admit I don't quite understand. Millennial. Gen X, Gen Z, Um, you didn't say- (laughs) Okay, boomer.
0: (laughs) But you're not a boomer, are you? You're just like an elder X, Yeah,
1: technically, boomer ends like 65, something like that, and I was born in 66. Okay. so Split hairs, why don't you? Which is weird that two of my (laughs) sisters are boomers, but I'm not. Well, this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about generations. (laughs) Like, what are they- how are they determined but more importantly are are they descriptive or are they what Sally Henslinger would call a gerrymandered set? So next week, we're going to talk about generations.
0: That sounds super interesting. I love to make broad sweeping, mostly inaccurate statements about generations. So I'll try to get them all ready for next week. With
2: heavy doses of judgment.
0: <laughs> yes, right. Heavy doses of judgment. All right, you guys, this has been great. I will catch you for the next episode. And we will be talking about generations. Catch y'all next time. Later.
2: Later. This <laughs> <laughs>